0: James. Hey Duncan. How are you, dude? I'm well, thanks. How are you? I'm good. We're back for chapter four of the Way But Why series on the story of us, which is called The Enlightenment Kids. Um, and with sort of uh, that title, The Enlightenment Kids, there's a quote which um, I read to people at work and ask them to guess when it's from. So I thought I'd read it to James and get him to guess when it's from. Children now love luxury. They have bad manners, contempt for authority, they show disrespect for their elders, and love chatter in the place of exercise. Children are now tyrants, not the servants of their household. They no longer rise when their elders enter the room, they contradict their parents, chatter before company, gobble up dainties at the table, cross their legs, and tyrannise their teachers. So James, where do you think that's from?
1: I'm pretty sure I said that yesterday. (laughs) But
0: yeah, where do you think it's from? Uh, It sounds like it's from some some point in time very recently. Socrates, two and a half thousand years ago. Oh, come on. I know. So nobody even gets close. So some people are like, oh, Dukun's asking this. So it must be like 200 years ago. So they try to extend it. Um, And and the reason I sort of was bringing this up is that you think you're different, um, but you're not. People have all thought this since time immortal. I remember, I don't know, being a teenager, like, I don't know, late late teenagers and thinking my parents knew nothing. They were just these old fuddy-duddies that had no real, you know, understanding of the world as it was. And then I remember when we were finishing university, um, someone asked if they could speak to my dad just because about work stuff and they're wanting a job and they're wanting advice. And I was like, in my head, you mean that old person that doesn't know anything about anything? (laughs) (laughs) And then I realized, hang on, the places that I'm applying for work, people like my dad are like, the people are like, oh, scary, important, wise person. And then the other person who's who's my father, I'm like, idiot that's totally lost, you know, contact with the world and context. And so... I think I've sort of been through this stage of, well, I don't know. Like there are two types of people, those that don't know, and those that know, they don't know. I hope I'm in the latter. Um, but, yeah, basically, ignorance and, and this sort of shift from children seems to have been around forever.
1: Yeah, no, this is, it's, it's a really interesting dichotomy. Like I personally um, would put myself at the other end of the spectrum where I pretty much grew up always thinking I didn't know anything. Like I had no idea what was going on. I didn't know how things actually really worked. Like I can still remember the time when I figured out what a bank actually does. I was like, really? That's it? Like there's nothing? <laughs> like um, you just give out loans and that's how you make your money? Okay. Um, I'm sure I must be missing something else here. And I'm, I'm I'm sure if you can argue that the devil's in the details. Um, but in terms of this um, this quote, Duncan, that you found, and how this applies across different generations, it really does lend uh, like require pause when you think about this is not something new. This is not something that is just coming through a recent um, shift in generational ideology or anything like that. This is something that's been going on since the dawn of time.
0: Yeah, I suppose. I didn't think I knew stuff. I just thought that I knew more than my parents, <laughs> that they were these discon- okay. I knew that, you know, disconnected old faridaris. Um And so, you know, when it says here, you know, children have bad manners and contempt for authority, yeah, like, I can see some sort of it. Like, I don't think I've gotten older. They're just now all these young people. Like, I'm exactly the same age. I've always been the same age. But, you know, mm-hmm. I'm 35. Somehow I'm 20 years older than 15-year-olds, and I might meet a 15-year-old every now and then. And I'm like, oh, my God. Like, please put a cork in it. Like, you know, wh- why are you talking? <laughs> and I'm like, hold on. I was that 15-year-old, wasn't I? So not yeah. great.
1: Yeah, no, you were a special case of that 15-year-old. But it, <laughs> it, it would it, – so where this relates back into – um this particular episode of the story of us Um, so he also points out or he makes the distinction that the enlightenment kids who we'll get into in a moment were the quote entitled millennials of their time yeah and so that's where there's this same kind of um, distinction between a group of younger generationals coming up and uh, you know shifting the way in which they operate in the world and i think What's really um, pertinent is that this kind of like strikes to the heart of what we call the circle of life, right? There's an established order. New life comes into the establishment with a fresh view on the world, questions everything, and when answers don't stack up, they then say, well, I'm gonna create a new world order. So like this to me is why this concept prevails. It's not just that they're entitled or lazy, or at least not only those things, but they're seen as a threat. You know, everything that the geriatrics of the old generation know and love to find comfort in is, at, th- is, is um, at danger of being broken down, cast aside by the next generation. So this kind of like plays into our primordial
0: instinct of annihilation. Hmm. Um, so one of the first quotes that Tim has is tyranny, coup, chaos, tyranny. Um, and so initially he says that the past was the power games and then we are shifting to the value games. And so in the power games, someone was in control and then they basically became a bit of a tyrant and they were looking after themselves more than they should to the point where people got so unhappy, there was a coup, then there was chaos and then a new dictator got put in place and then the cycle mm. sort of continued. Mm. Um, so this is sort of the merry-go-round and, and one of the key things here, the Enlightenment kids, is that the US tried to create something new. There wasn't a king. Um, you know, how do they have something where there isn't tyranny? Um, And so they set up these systems of checks and balances, three equal branches of government, you know, the president, uh, the House and the Senate, um, and to try to see how they could each balance each other. And that this could mean that no one part could have too much power and become tyrannous. Um, I think we're seeing Trump trying to have a really good, you know, crack at this. But this is (laughs) like a really, really nice sort of idea that if you can stop the tyranny, you stop the coup and you stop the chaos. And so this means that people cannot have, you know, upheaval, you know, a change of the leader, meaning, you know, everyone's businesses get taken away and you have to go and fight. So if you could stop this, you have much, much better outcomes for people.
1: Right. So so this is a really good segue into how this perpetual cycle just continues to reinvent itself until someone breaks down the wheel. So this tyranny, coup, chaos, tyranny, merry-go-round, is the result of you know the um, the proletariat being oppressed by the bourgeoisie of the time, and deciding that they're not going to be pushed around anymore, and so they would overthrow whoever was in control, only to instill their own same model of this sense of tyranny and power. So even though what they thought they were doing was uh, you know the right thing to do, they were still perpetuating the same cycle. So what was different here is that. The Enlightenment kids, or who are actually the founding fathers of um, the United States in this story, didn't do the same model, they broke the model. So they moved away from, well, we're just going to overthrow your version of tyranny and instill our own, to saying, well, we're going to completely change the way in which, which this works.
0: I thought I'd just um, clarify one thing James said. I think what he said was right, but he used Marxist terminology, which is proletariat and bourgeoisie. So Marx and Engels were sort of late 1800s, which was after the first Industrial Revolution. And so what they thought, and this is my articulation, is that you needed to have the Industrial Revolution for everyone to become rich. But then you had this massive inequality because there were people that owned the factories, people that worked in the factories. And then after that new productivity hire to come along, there was an uprising of the proletariat, and then they took ownership of the factories. So this tyranny coup, chaos was actually from before that, and there wasn't, you know, factory workers. People were sort of peasant farmers, etc. Um, so those terminology, I don't think necessarily was, well, they were invented in the late 1800s. But the idea and the concept works, i.e. there was a king or something, and they might have basically become, you know, two... Uh, Navel gazing. I don't know the French or whatever. and Then you have the French Revolution, and then you have uh, Napoleon come along, and then you know he crowns himself sort of king <laughs> not too shortly after.
1: Yeah, I take your point. So um, it may be a little bit esoteric. So maybe I should probably expand the aperture out to those in power versus those not in power. Yeah. Uh, and 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 so this really sets this theme for how the power games uh, would work that we kind of explored over the last <laughs> th- three episodes where. It was really up to those who could, you know, subsume power within whatever community they were in, to be able to maintain and create control. Now, there was this kind of distinction between, well, how do you leverage that by using the more primordial instinctive lower mind versus how do you leverage that through the use of stories? But now we're looking at the next level up from this, which is, well, what are the actual foundations within which you can, create a functioning society.
0: Mm. So I think they were trying to minimize or not too much power in one hand and then also to be having a tr- peaceful transition between the people in power. So they say a country is not really a democracy until it's had peaceful transition of power between two sides. So it can't be like, I don't know, there's a left-leaning party and a right-leaning party and the left party transfers to the left party. It has to be left to the right. And so basically you need to have it transferred twice and then you have a successful democracy. I don't know who came up with that. Um mm. And so this is really interesting. So, one, you can't have someone who has absolute power and able to do whatever they want, you know, a.k.a. You know, Putin or Xi Jinping, if you ask me, and then they do some things which aren't so great. Imagine if Trump had absolute power. Like, it's, it's a very good example of the U.S. democracy rating him in, even though you know, he's done some things which I don't think are so great. Imagine if he could do whatever he wanted. Um, and so this is sort of the next part. It's like, okay, well, then, as part of this system they came up with, they had voting. Um, and I like this Churchill quote, the best argument against democracy is a five-minute chat with the average voter. (laughs)
1: Yeah, uh, I I think... I don't know if it was for democracy or for capitalism, but it was... um, Democracy. Well, no, I'm talking about uh, the quote that I'm about to try and remember myself, which is something along the lines of, like, capitalism is the worst form of economic
0: management, uh, save for all other versions. It's another Churchill one. It was... Um, Democracy is the worst form of government, except for all other forms of government that people have tried.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, similar notion in terms of uh, there being, you know, really this idea that when, you know, you work in a uh, in a democratic society, we, we, we tie ourselves, at least I think I do anyway, to the ideals that we try to perpetuate but then when you actually go and talk to real life people you can see that there's a little bit of a cognitive dissonance between your ideals and the actual reality
0: yeah totally um and so i think going back to where we sort of started um you know in australia you become a voter at 18. i honestly thought i had better thoughts about how to vote than my parents like i would have sworn black and blue that they had lost touch with reality and now I'm like, I didn't even know which way up was. Like, it, it was, it, it's, um, unfortunately, they say, you know, there's an old quote I'm not young enough to know the answer anymore. I thought I knew the answer, which is just shows how wildly ignorant. And so they say, if you want to, uh, you know, convince someone, appeal to emotion, not ration. Mm. And that's what you see happening a lot in the US. And that's kind of what, you know, Fox News really pushed. They'd find topics which are us versus them, not, you know, we. And then they would also pick the most emotional one, you know, immigration or something, or taking away our guns. And that's the way to get people to vote for you, yeah. is to have them emotionally resonate. And so I certainly, you know, can see that in myself and other things. And I think trying to figure out that my emotions are firing off here and that therefore I may not necessarily be making the world's most rational choice is really difficult.
1: Mm, yeah, and I, I, I really think this, this idea of emotions versus um, rationality uh, playing directly to the lower mind versus the higher mind that mm. um, we, we we draw a distinction to here. That, and, and I can't remember where, where, where it was, I think whether it was in Thinking Fast and Slow or in um, another um, study on psychology, that our brains react to the emotional uh, cortex a lot faster than it does to the rational and cognitive one. And so when something does pull on our emotional heartstrings, we respond to that before we actually have time to think about it consciously. So this is why it's a lot more powerful that, you know, in advertising, in politics, when people do appeal to a more instinctive, emotive nature, it has far more pull on someone trying to be talking to us more rationally.
0: Yeah, um, this is a really important So. Thinking fast and slow was basically Danny Kahneman saying that there's two modes, thinking fast and thinking slow. And also, I'm sure I'm going to get this really wrong. <laughs> thinking fast is what's kind of your automatic response. Now, some of these things are biological programs. James and I were talking about them in the last podcast. So, for instance, walk near a cliff, get vertigo. But some of them are socio-cultural indoctrinated programs. Uh, so, for instance, I don't know, see a really expensive watch if you're younger and you're like, oh, my God, cool. Um, and so there's the automatic actually wired in thing and you don't choose that response normally it's automatic it's thinking fast and it is associated with a thought and an emotion typically so whatever see someone hit your brother and then you're immediately unhappy and you think i'm going to make that person pay because you know family is important and so the thinking slow bit is kind of what happens after you have processed the thought side so there's your automatic. And you can do programming to yourself, but there's also programming done to you by society. So my articulation, I think, of what you're sort of saying, James, is that the thinking slow part requires you to cognitively go through the thought process. But if you want someone to respond as fast as possible, just hit the emotional button, which is something wired in. So, for instance, in Australia, stop the boats or something like this. Mm. So it's, it's much easier to get a response, a very quick one, <laughs> by just hitting on an in, in-built, you know, wiring. Yeah, so,
1: I, um, so Duncan and I were actually talking to something similar to this um, before we started our conversation, which is the difference between reacting and responding. And so in a, one of the other things that they were talking about in this article I was reading in between, when you react to something instinctively, is that if you allow that to happen and you don't take the time to process the information and then consciously think about how you want to respond so instead you you instinctively react that can then inform your future take or cognitive uh awareness of that particular piece of information so it's kind of like your emotions also feed your um your conscious mind in terms of what you you think on a particular subject does that make
0: sense yeah i think um sort of like Reacting is your inbuilt wiring for thinking mm. fast. And responding is you choosing, not just yeah. having what happens. But you can condition yourself. <laughs> um, so, for instance, getting an A on an exam, that's not some biological programming in your you know, source code. You've been told that getting an A is good. And so, there's these stages which I talk about. unconscious incompetence, conscious incompetence, conscious competence, unconscious competence. So... One of the things I didn't realize as a 20-year-old is that I can basically do programming to myself. So there's the biological source code, vertigo, hunger, tired, horny, etc. Then there's sociocultural indoctrination. So getting an A on a test is good. Winning the grand, grand final for your sports team is good. But then you can also do your own ones. And so this is like how do you move from thinking slow to thinking fast? So how do you have this to be your automatic response? And this is effectively mm. building a habit. Um, and so this is really important. Um I didn't realize that or you know N- Naval Harari, so Yuval Harari would say that the human body is a biochemical operating system. And I like that analogy. Um, and I'm like, okay, well, I would like to do programming to it, you know what I would call systematic upgrades, ideally, you're not doing downgrades. And so then <laughs> then you kind of like there is all this automatic response built into it. Sometimes that automatic response is your friend and sometimes it's you're not your friend. Um, and so sometimes you're like, oh, well, that's my automatic response. That's really been getting me into trouble all over the place. I need to change that. And then you set up systems around this. Um, so it's really, really, really interesting. you're like, well, I can rewire myself. I'm like I think you can. Mm.
1: Yeah, I, I, I completely agree. It's when we take this uh, this, no, this notion of uh, you know up leveling yourself, from the lower mind to the high mind in terms of like, let's be very binary here and determine whether one is the, uh, the majority of your thought process versus the other and extrapolate that out to an entire population. And we start to get a sense of how something like running a political uh, system like a democracy can be very complicated very quickly. Because when you look at it in a, uh, in the spirit of how a democracy should be run, is that that, that the best ideas should win out and that we decide on how we want to be governed. But when politicians quickly learn that the best way to trigger a response from a large population is to cater to our more baser instincts rather than to talk to us rationally, that can start to have long-standing
0: effects on who we decide to actually elect as, Um, the governing body yeah totally so i think a lot of people would say it's easier to get people to vote for you through appealing to their emotions rather than their ration and emotions is kind of that thinking fast and ration is that thinking slow which just takes more time so one of the things plato said is that he's not sure everyone should be able to vote and he used the analogy of a ship he's like if you're voting for the captain of a sailing ship but you have no idea how to sail then why would you know who a good captain's going to be? And he thought that it's similar, that people are voting for the captain of the ship, e.g. the prime minister or the president or, or the party in charge, but they have no idea what makes a good you know, prime minister or president, as an example. Mm. And so this is sort of the one thing, that if you could change one thing, what would it be? And I think all else equal, despite what 15-year-old Duncan might have thought, he didn't know everything. Um, I like to think that I've learned some things in the last 20 years um, and that I would therefore, on average, make better decisions than I would 20 years ago. And so I think that if you could effectively, hopefully, increase the base knowledge that people have about the political issues, you know, whatever it is, education, healthcare, climate change, etc., that they would then be able to make more informed decisions for themselves and they would be less susceptible to people playing to their emotions. Mm. Mm.
1: So you'll never go broke catering to the lowest common denominator. Yeah. <laughs> that, that was a quote from Helen Keller, um, a, 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 a late American author, but it, it kind of plays into that same point here. And I think, like just, just lastly on this topic before we go um, into the Enlightenment kids, I think it's, really, it's a really, really hard one because I would consider myself someone who likes to uh, inform themselves in a rational manner. <laughs> but I would still consider myself woefully underinformed when it comes to our political landscape. So, what that means is that I would not trust myself to elect a leader of our government based on the level of. Like, when I go to any voting. Uh, event, I do not recognize 90% of the names on the ballot, which means I do not understand 90% of what is being offered in terms of how I would like, you know, whether it is my local community, my city or state or even country to be run. So, and as Duncan, you and I pointed out uh, before, you know, we are both, um, I would say, voracious, voracious learners or readers at least. Yet in still still in this in this light, I have a unreliable sense in terms of how I think people are presenting ideas when it comes to <laughs> different types of government.
0: Yeah, um so if you want to get elected, and for better or worse, I think a lot of politicians think success is being elected as opposed to helping. So I think the job of a politician is to hopefully help steer the ship in a better direction than it currently is. Um, moral leadership basically, mm. but the easiest way to get elected is just to say that you'll do whatever the people want. Yeah. So it shows zero moral leadership. It's just sort of, okay, what does the average everyone wants? Oh, that is my policy. Now for better or worse, I think that hopefully the future is better than today, which means that the future needs to be different to today, which means that they need to change it in some way. Now, I think there are people that have, you know, you can't know everything. Um, but hopefully you can, in an area, have find ways that are going to make it better than not. And so to me, a politician who doesn't show moral leadership is not a politician. So to me, they need to be trying to find a way to improve the world in some way and need to be able to find a way to show moral leadership and to educate mm. the body politic and why this difference between now is better and get them on board. That's very, mm. very, 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 very difficult. Um, mm. But I also think it could be a very interesting and rewarding challenge. So
1: the optimist in me kind of leans more towards that notion, Duncan, of, you know, politicians can only make empty promises for so long before the social contract in terms of how we elect our leaders is going to have to be rewritten. And so I would, um, in if... if such an outcome would come to pass, I would hope that it would be something more along the lines of what their values are, and at the very, at the very most, what they would intend to try and instill as part of their government, but not make, you know, wide ranging promises in order to, you know, stoke the, um, the base and needs of their, of their base. But why I'm not an optimist is if you if we look back at what our good friend um, Yuval Harari has been saying <laughs> is there are computers, um, well, AI, he, in his reckoning, will one day be able to read our thoughts better and faster than we can and will be able to construct a narrative that will be able to best able, that is best able to manipulate. A large population. And so if a politician were to get their hands on a theoretical AI like this, then they could weave the best possible narrative to further their own
0: political um, power rather than to truly serve what would be the, the wider public. Yeah, I think so. This is the sort of point that what happened with Cambridge Analytica, um, you know, and Trump, where they were trying to that you know serving custom ads to people, which are designed specifically to hit their emotional buttons to get them to mm. vote. Mm. This is basically designed to figure out what your thinking fast patterns are, i.e., your inbuilt wiring, and then to just nail you perfectly. Like here's all your thinking fast things, and then bang, bang, bang hit the four things that are James that are really good here, or hit the four things that are Duncan. I think the antidote to this is that people need to realize that they have a thinking fast and a thinking slow and that this served us well when we did basically the same thing every day. When we were hunter-gatherers, there's no fridges, there's no supermarkets, so you have to get up and hunt and gather every day. And tomorrow, you hunt and gather. And the next day, you hunt and gather. And so you needed to learn, okay, when an animal comes, I don't have time to think about what to do. I need to automatically do something. And so, that's almost very different. All repetitive jobs are getting replaced by the machines. Mm. So, if your job is repetitive, this thinking fast thing was really, really good. If your job is not repetitive, it's really, really bad. And so, to me, if you rely on your thinking fast built in, you can be hacked. But if you want to go and consider something... Then you're thinking slow. So it comes in and you know, oh, I see it firing off. This is part of what they call observing your consciousness. Oh, I see this. I see this story. Okay, it wants me to do that. Do I actually want to do that? Or is this a wolf in sheep's clothing and they're just trying to manipulate me? So I think that that's basically what he's saying. You, you play to the thinking fast wiring in people and you can manipulate them to do what you want. But the antidote to this is that humans, quote unquote, wake up you know, and are able to see more of what's happening and think slow far more. And if you're mm. thinking slow, then you can't be hacked. Mm. So,
1: the illiterate of the 21st century will not be those who cannot read and write, but those who cannot learn, unlearn, and relearn. Where's that from? Is, is that your var? Uh Alvin Toffler. Okay. Uh, so, Alvin reason... Toffler? Toffler. Toffler. <laughs> Toffler. <Cool. laughs> um, but the reason why I say that is because when I hear you say, Duncan, like, the best way out of this potential um, conundrum is by people starting to up-level themselves. My my reaction is to immediately go to, well, yes, but people are not inherently rational beings. They cannot do this themselves. But then I stop myself and I think, well, hold on. Is that true or am am I just perpetuating a conventional wisdom in today's world? Because if you go back, let's say, five hundred years, the majority of the world population could not read, whereas that is now very much split on its head in today's world, mm. where the majority of the population can read because of a better education. So it stands to reason that what you're saying, Duncan, I think would hopefully be possible in the near future where we teach people not just to read and write, but how to be more critical in how they can start to be more self-authoring and be more aware of what is an instinctive
0: mindset versus a more rational and cognitive mindset. Yeah, so this is, this is a good point. Um, in the 70s, if you had a computer job, or we used to computer, you were some specialist because no one could use computers. Now, no one writes on their resume can use computer. You know, like, like, like every, everyone can do it. Do you know what I mean?
1: Um, what do you mean? I still do that.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, so we've all gone through change after change after change. Mm. Almost no jobs today. Did anyone do five hundred years ago? So you you could take someone from being a you know a surf on the land, being a you know a sort of you know farmer, and then put them today, and they can't drive a car, they can't read a newspaper, they can't you know send an email, they can't do anything. And so to me, yeah, five hundred years ago, ten percent of the population were literate. Now they're more than ninety percent are. But I think that they've become mm-hmm. able to read, not necessarily able to think. Um, and so to me. If humans stay exactly the way they are now, then we can be hacked for sure. But Mm. there's always a sort of game of cat and mouse. Like, can you sort of get ahead slightly? (laughs) Um, Mm. And so to me, um, there's always a new scourge, you know, whether it's opium in in China or or whether it's, you know, social media today. Um, And people slowly learn how to use it to to make it work well for them. They slowly do what's Mm. good for them in the long term. Hopefully, we don't kill ourselves in the intervening time. But I'm confident that we won't just be able to be fully hacked, like Yval Harari says?
1: Mm. Yeah. So it's, it's this idea of how do we level ourselves up to the next, uh, I guess, stage of collective consciousness or the emergence tower, as uh, Tim Urban would put it. Uh, and I, and I really like this idea of like you know this 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 rewiring or this re. Um, uh, redesigning of how we operate not just on an individual level but more of a societal and a, um, on a global scale and uh, like the one that I really am drawn to the most is our model of education right so 200 years ago the problem with the world to be overly simplistic could be we do not have enough literate people to be able to fill all of the jobs that are coming through in the now industrial revolution and so education could arguably be said to have been set up to address that problem of the time. Whereas what people like um, you know Sir Ken Robinson, um, who is a very famous um, uh, uh, thinker in the UK, talking about how we need to reinvent education, could be to this point. It's not that, well, we've solved the problem illiteracy, and now we're just spinning the wheel, is what is the illiteracy of today? And it could be this idea of, well, we need to start thinking about what the world in tomorrow is going to be needing in terms of, well, people who can think more creatively, people who can think more critically, as opposed to people who can apply certain skills that that are either repeatable
0: or able to be acquired simply by right learning. Yeah. um, So people would say, and this is a reductive outcome, that the Industrial Revolution created enough... Actual, you know, spare capacity for people to be able to have education for the first time. So in the eighteen seventies mm-hmm. in the UK, they had three years of government education. Before that, there were schools, but you had to pay for that. There was no government education, so it was only for very wealthy people. And then it moved from sort of three years in the eighteen seventies to sort of twelve or thirteen years in most developed countries today. The curriculum hasn't changed much, um, and that it was set up for the jobs that existed at that time, which were pretty much repetitive jobs, and now those are being replaced by machines. Um, and so it did a very good job for what it was built for, but now we need to be able to do what they call 21st century skills. Um, so that's things like critical thinking, uh, communication, empathy, uh, emotional intelligence, et cetera, which weren't really, um, you know, I don't know, the first things that they were designing for back then. I think the world is getting better, but I, I do think we can do better through our existing uh, education system um, mm. and hopefully help people. But it's, it's interesting. If you took someone today and put them back 500 years ago, they're the world's smartest person, they know that the witch next door didn't put a spell on their kid and that's why they're sick and so they should burn that witch at the stake. And they know about, you know, you, know, oh, you know, I'm just going to invent you know, some physics just quickly before Isaac Newton does. And then, you know, hey, look at me. I'm a genius like Isaac Newton. No, you're not. You just, you know, what he invented, they teach you your 10 kids now. Mm. Um, so to me, yeah, um, we can and I think have been getting better. So despite the education system in large respects being similar in most countries to say 100 years ago, a human today, like I think, the equivalent fifteen-year-old today knows more than their parents did when they were fifteen. Yeah, and that's because yeah. a lot of stuff happens not in the classroom. There's a lot of yeah. stuff that's around as well. Yeah,
1: yeah. So what is revolutionary today is, is, is basic uh, intuition in fifty years' time. Mm. And like, uh, so going back to the children of in, Enlightenment, the most revolutionary thinking of the time was this new model of the value games, right? So, um, you know, put simply, uh, and this is how Tim Urban described it in the article, up until, you know, the, the middle of the, um, well, like the late 18th century, pretty much the majority of societies and countries around the world were driven by the power game, which was those who could get themselves in power had the majority of control over the rest of the people within that, um, their influence, and it was a very much fixed hierarchy. Uh, and then the new thinking coming through where people were starting to think, well, there's another way we could be doing this and suggesting that humans had, you know, more of what they would call inalienable rights, such as, um, you know, everybody was equal and everybody had the same chance to a good life as everyone else. That today sounds so intuitive. If you, I, you know, I would be forgiven for thinking that that was also baked into my source code. But it was something that was so radical at the time that you know they had to you know go to war in order to, for them to be able to create a, a nation where something like this could exist.
0: I'm not sure that that last part is fair. Um, yeah, no, I, I, so I, I, I would, a, yeah, I would reword that. that. Yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, careful, James. <laughs> um, so I think this is another quote which we're going to talk about um, from Churchill again. This is just Churchill quoting. He's got so many great things. <laughs> Um, the inherent vice of capitalism is the unequal sharing of blessings. The inherent virtue of socialism is the equal sharing of miseries. So, if you look today, um, inequality has been rising in most of the West, um, and people are unhappy about this. I think there's a number of structural reasons for this, and I think that they should actually turn around. And so then they say, "Oh, we want socialism." Like, well, do you want to go and live like there aren't really any ones left? But like, I don't know, North Korea or something might be one of the only social ones, or you know, the US is like, No, I don't want to live there. I say, like, okay. So what are you thinking about then? And so this is where I think it's really interesting, and this is from Rawls, and I've written this in down here, so I'll try to explain my understanding of this. The only inequality allowed is that which is increases opportunity. So what this means is that, effectively, people who strive to do better should do better, and that then what they do is that the slice of pie for those at the bottom of the you know, income a bracket or opportunity gets bigger. So, what you're worried about is lifting the floor, the opportunity amount for for the people who start with the least. But the way to do that is not to give everyone exactly the same. It's to try to grow the pie as much as possible, but then to split it in an equitable fashion. So, kind of paradoxically, allowing people to do good, done well, helps out people at the bottom of the income spectrum the most. Okay.
1: That makes sense. No. uh, I'm. It's, it helps a lot when you explain it like that. But I'm going to try and see if I can pull this apart. Like, Firstly, my my, uh, my questioning is that, is this not just another way of saying this is the, the foundational principle of capitalism itself, which is to suggest that based on, on the principle of equal opportunity, everybody has the right to pursue their own, I guess, uh, means of, I don't, know, I don't want to say enriching themselves, but like creating wealth. And think, oh. as long as it doesn't um, violate that first rule, would that
0: not basically constitute it having to increase opportunity? So you can look at it different ways, and, and I think this is a far more nuanced um, way of describing yeah. things. Uh, so rules died, I think, in like two thousand or thereabouts, um, and a lot of the other people that made some of the you know capitalist thoughts, like Adam Smith, etc., they were alive a lot longer, a lot earlier than that. Um, so To me, if you have unbridled capitalism and sort of part of what happened, for instance, in the late 1800s in the US, they didn't have rules like insider trading, like all these other things. And so there's a bunch of people, I think seven of the 10 wealthiest people of all time were all in the US and all born within three years of each other. So the US was the biggest country and that they were then part of the world when the idea of scale changed. And there was like the banking one, which was J.P. Morgan. And then there was the steel one, which was Carnegie. And then there was the oil one, which was Rockefeller. So these people became dominant in each field and were sort of monopolists. And so what they were called is robber barons. Um, And the reason they were called robber is because people thought that they got their wealth in a morally unjust way. Now, it wasn't illegal. They made laws after what they did to make Mm. it illegal. But this is this sort of thing. So I don't think anyone would say that you should have zero regulation in markets or zero regulation around because it can mean that people distort things. So it's very, very sort of nuanced. It's not either capitalistic or socialistic. It's a continuum. And different industries should have different places. So for instance, I don't know, in Australia, we have partially government, partially you know, private healthcare. In some countries like Canada, there's only government. And in some countries like the US, there's only private and what's the best? I don't know, but this is sort of on a spectrum. So there's different parts, and so it's it's really, really, really nuanced. And I haven't addressed exactly your point, which I can get to, but I thought I'd pause there.
1: Okay, so like I th- I think the nuance here is that there is a spectrum, and I and I agree. I don't think enough people appreciate that, like myself included. A lot of thinking is in the binary sense. You're either a socialist or you are a capitalist. You're either you know a right. Uh, you know, leaning person or your left, you're conservative or you're liberal. Um, But I think by bringing it back to thinking it more along the lines of, well, there are layers to this and there are um, elements that can't necessarily be teased out into a um, yes or no argument, at least brings us back to a playing field where we can say that there's no hard right or wrong here. There's only levels of intensity so much. So when you talk about these things around, well, the only inequality allowed is that to which increases opportunity. Um, that still, I guess, implicitly accounts for things that don't necessarily address things like income inequality, or um, and uh, we can argue about the notion of that itself. But like at least uh, the wealth the the inequality yeah.
0: by itself isn't bad. That's, that's an, uh, in my opinion, not a fair yeah, character. Bad example. I, I didn't yeah. mean income,
1: inequality. I meant the wealth gap. Yeah, but All why right is the so wealth
0: gap? It's, it's the income inequality by a different name. That's not bad. I disagree with that. Kind of, it depends what kind of wealth gap. So, so income
1: you... inequality is suggesting yeah. that somebody is not getting paid the same amount for the same job, which I don't necessarily is... is, is the case or at least nowhere near as much as what people would lead you to believe the wealth gap is basically the divide between the um the wealthiest and the poorest in your country so i'd say they're two very distinctive
0: um issues okay so i'm um, i'm not sure that that's how i would characterize those things but anyways let's just take your definition which is wealth gap so what rolls i believe is saying and i'm sure i'm going to characterize this incorrectly is that getting to have some people who become very wealthy is okay if Mm. that increases the opportunity for people at the bottom. Mm. So what matters the most is increasing the opportunity for the people at the bottom. And the strategy that optimizes towards that is the best. Now, people say, okay, well, you can have no people that earn at the top, which is socialism, right? But that has actually been shown to have the bottom, i.e. the people at the bottom having much less than where you do allow inequality. So I don't think having inequality is per se bad or good. It depends on the type of this. And so I think you yeah. were in an absolute sense saying wealth inequality is not good. We need to lower it. No, I think we want to give as much opportunity for those at the bottom as possible. And we yeah. need to figure out the best way to allocate our resources to do that. And I think the outcome is some government, some private, you know, with regulation around the edges to sort of have these things. And so this is really interesting. So I think what Rawls is saying, if you allow inequality people to do well, you need to redistribute some of that money. Mm. So 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 doing really well increases productivity and then this means that that person can be taxed more than they otherwise would and then that money can be given, for instance, to people at the bottom of the spectrum. And so that means that they get more than they would have gotten if that person wasn't allowed to be able to do really well. Oh. So what I think's happened happened is, is the difference is that the pie has grown as it has sort of always been but that the share going to the people at the bottom in the U.S., has not been what people would term as fair and reasonable versus the share going to say people at the top. Inequality or wealth gap isn't in itself bad. However, if the split of the growing pie is not being done in a fair fashion, people will become unhappy. So I think you were saying that it was bad. And I think that's a very sort of, in my opinion, one dimensional view, which is not a fair reflection of reality.
1: Well, I I agree with your take on the, the nuances on that. I was not trying to say that wealth inequality is bad because that is communism <laughs> um, and that's not at all what I'm trying to get um, get across here. Right? So the, the, the first, the, the sense of like that there needs to be more of a redistribution of wealth, well, that that is in a sense a more socialistic point of view. But when it comes back to this, this notion of the wealth gap, you need, like, for there to be a functioning capitalist society, that is one of the outcome I would argue that there will be a different spread of different levels of wealth simply because humans and people are different and some will be able to manifest for themselves different outcomes based on the how hard they work or what what value they're able to create for the rest of the world so I'm not suggesting that your your quote in terms of increasing opportunity which doesn't take into consideration the wealth gap is a bad thing because there is a wealth gap. What I was trying to I guess, tease into was, well, if inequality is count, is acceptable purely on the basis of increasing opportunity, then there may be things that it doesn't factor in that can, I guess, leave people feel more displaced because it can leverage the increase in value for those few at the top rather than those at the bottom. But I take your point, Duncan. I'm not trying to say that the wealth gap is bad, right? That, that you can, there are a whole host of resources that show that when the wealth gap has gotten too big and the, the distinction on where that line is drawn is debatable, it does have a, a negative impact on a society. Like, you know, livelihoods go down, heart um, disease goes up, all of these different kinds of things. But there still doesn't, that doesn't necessarily suggest that we need to get rid of it altogether. That's not what I was trying to say.
0: Okay, cool. I think. This is like a really important point. Um, what I think we want to do is hopefully have a better outcome for people, you know, generation on generation. And this means, so Rawls's idea was the veil of ignorance. Doesn't matter where you're born, uh, you know, you, you wouldn't mind. And so what this means is that you want to help everybody. Let's just take it quartiles, you know, bottom quartile, third, second, first. But each quartile does better generation on generation than what happened before. Okay, that's the most important thing. And that I think what Rawls was saying is that what matters most is to try to optimise towards improving the fourth quartile, the bottom quartile, the most. Not worrying about improving the top quartile the most. So some people would have said before, worry about growing the pie as much as possible. So that's the most important thing. I would say that Rawls is saying the f- most important thing is to worry about growing the slice of the pie for the bottom quartile as much as possible. And that the outcome of this is that people in that bottom quartile are more likely to be able to reach their potential. They're not going to have some impediment in the way which stops them, which wasn't their own doing, like I was lazy or something. Mm -hmm. And that them them doing well means that they grow the pie more. So the actual way to optimise everyone's slice of the pie getting bigger is to optimise the size of the pie slice at the bottom. And that actually the best system that they have tried is to allow some inequality, not no inequality, but the inequality with redistribution other things that increases the slice of the pie for the people in the bottom part. And this is far more nuanced because people can't sort of see it's like, well, that person's getting wealthy. It's like, yes, but them getting wealthy is the best way to increase the slice of the pie size for the people in the bottom quartile. Hmm. And this, I don't think, has been happening properly in the US. I mean, you can sort of see it patiently hasn't. Like the real wage, for instance, has gone down in inflation adjusted terms versus three, oh, the minimum wage, I should say, versus three decades ago. Um, And I don't think that's necessarily the greatest way. Um, But this is really important. Inequality isn't necessarily bad. Wealth gap isn't necessarily bad. It depends how it's used, and it depends if you're using it to help people out. Yeah,
1: yeah, so I I, I wanna try and like, you know, at least recapture a little bit of faith here. I wasn't in any sense trying to suggest that by its own existence, a wealth gap um, is bad. Um, but I think that's a, ne- a ne- necessary element or a necessary uh, symptom of a functioning uh, capitalistic society, and I'm not necessarily, and I'm, I'm not bashing on capitalism at all. <laughs> yeah. um, so going the other way, then, if and, and so this is where, I, and I, I don't, and I don't know how Rawls suggests that his, this particular um, statement applies to only those in the bottom.
0: Quartile. Um, that's my. He was saying the people at the bottom of the income, you know, and, and he wasn't actually including it as income. That's a blunt way. It's what you can do with yeah. it. So, for instance, yeah. do you have access to education, to healthcare, etc.? Yeah. Um So you want to increase opportunity, and opportunity isn't dollars, but dollars yeah. is an abbreviation of, of opportunity.
1: But then, what about those where you can see uh, inequality as a consequence of technology? Right? people developing new technologies such as, let's just say, AI or machine automation that is leading to further displacement or a further inequality, for want of a better word, because people are losing their livelihoods or losing their jobs. Now, I know we can argue that, you know, a proper functioning um, government could help re-educate and um, retrain these people, but in, in the spirit of what Rawls is saying here, well, to me, reading his statement would suggest that that's not okay. If you are uh, creating wealth by automating a whole bunch,
0: an entire sector of a, a functioning society. So, there's always been jobs that have been going away. Uh, and I, again, like I don't think this was part of you know any new rules. Um, so, you know, 90 um, something percent of us were subsistence farmers. Now, 1.3% in the West, are, and we feed more than the entire population in Australia or the US, we export food, and 1.3% of jobs from more than 90% of jobs. So we've destroyed, you know, 90% of jobs, and other people have got things done. So there's always been this going on. The question is, if we want to hopefully give a better outcome, then we need to increase the quality opportunity. This means we need productivity gains. Productivity gains means that effectively one human can do more than what they were doing in the past. One of the ways for that is that there's jobs that go away that are replaced by machines and then the humans can do anything else. So that's always been part of this. One of the things that they say is that the human intensity of stuff is going down. So for instance, in General Motors, I think was the most valuable company in, on the stock market in the 60s. And they had something like 10 times the amount of employees versus Facebook, which has a sort of similar market cap, uh, capitalization as a percentage of the whole of S&P 500. So the intensity of humans to create value has been dropping. Okay, what does that mean? Well, it means it's likely that the wealthiest get wealthier again. That doesn't mean because of increased opportunity or increased inequality at the top that that actually isn't the best way for them to optimise helping improve opportunity for people at the bottom. So inequality increasing in and of itself isn't bad. It's how is the pie being split. So, for instance, the best way to give people at the bottom more might be to allow more people to create new things and therefore, that, that if this is less people intense, therefore, it's even higher than what it was before. The goal is to help increase the, you know, have the veil of ignorance, which is that the people at the very bottom have the best outcome that they could. Mm. And so, this is, again, wi- wildly more nuanced. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's
1: very nuanced. And, like, we've gone off on a tangent here, but I'm really enjoying mm-hmm. it. Um, so, like... Personally, I'm not too sure I necessarily agree with the, to increase opportunity, you simply need to increase productivity.
0: Because Then you just recut it. So the opportunity has increased. Productivity has increased, therefore the pie is grown. The pie is grown. You need to recut the pie in a way but, which increases opportunity for those at the bottom, e.g. healthcare, maybe e.g. But education, etc. Maybe, but I don't think
1: that's necessarily been addressed here because like your example of uh, General Motors versus Facebook Uh, you know General Motors was in a time where the middle class was thriving as opposed to in today's world where you have this significant increase in productivity and companies like Facebook able to operate the same kind of market cap value but there's a complete decimation of the middle class um, uh, level in this in in this society so the and and you pointed out things like the the minimum wage has effectively decreased over time but we've seen all of the pointers that we've addressed already play themselves out in terms of, well, there's increase in productivity, there's an increase in you know, this level of technology that we're seeing today. And I'm not saying I necessarily believe that this is the wrong way to go. I'm just playing devil's advocate here, because if, if we try to account for all of the unfair actors or all of the things that are being exploited in today's world, we still are left with this sense that the more technological advancements we get, the more biased or unfair, it would seem, for those
0: who are in the bottom quartile. Yeah, I think this is a fundamental... I think this is a strong narrative that sits in the society, and I think it's fundamentally misconstrued. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll, I'll try to explain. It's going to take a little while, though. So after World War II, America was more than 50% of global GDP. They were everything... Everything else put together was smaller than them. This is because China... or oh, sorry, Europe had blown themselves up and Japan had, you know, blown themselves up. So they're the only one left standing. And so they had a manufacturing boom after World War II because nobody had any factories left. And so they had this incredible, you know, working class that had very, very high wages because nobody else could make anything. They exported everywhere else. Then slowly, you know, Germany and Japan got back on their feet and then they built some factories. So there was a high based on the outcome of World War II which meant that there were all these working class jobs in factories that were able to charge a lot of money and then they had were unskilled And then Japan and Germany went and did this. And then after this came along China, et cetera. But there are no new pools of um, people. So, for instance, China wasn't integrated into the global economy at all before Nixon. Like, zero. The USSR didn't have any trade with outside of the world. China and the US have huge trade now. There was zero trade. So there were billions of people that weren't incorporated. And so they had this high. And then they had to fight against all these other people who were far lower wage and so what happened is that they lost these jobs that were like General Motors and they were unionized and highly paid. And they got new jobs, but they weren't unionized and highly paid because they were unskilled. So they might go to services, they might work in a restaurant, and they might earn half as much. So what's happened is that since this high in the 50s, they have been systematically uh, you know, replaced by others. And therefore, these jobs have been sort of lost. But the other thing is the percentage of people in manufacturing has gone down wildly. So in 1900, it was 40% of people in working force were um, in factory jobs, now it's twelve percent. So there are just less of these jobs. So they had this one-off weird situation where they didn't have, you know, a war inside of America. You know, World War Two. It was in Europe. It was in Asia, etc. And so then they had this massive boom. Then they had systematically other people get back on their feet and charge less. But now that's done, and so there's no more deindustrialization possible. But also the, the robots sort of come along too. So I would argue that they are at the bottom of this, from this, ring. there's no more to this to go any new countries. Like China's incorporated into the global market now. And this is the opposite for China. So for instance, they had a massively increasing working class. That's no longer, they've got a um, working class, or as in working population, going down. So they have a 30% decrease in the next 30 years of their working population and a 30% increase in the last 30 years. They were not incorporated into the global economy at all 30 years ago. Now they're fully incorporated. Their growth model was exporting to other people. Now no longer people are buying stuff from them. So China's growth as a percentage of global GDP, I think is at a peak. And the US, which has been through this systematic, you know, are we losing our jobs, blah, 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 which has been true, has been through these macro factors. And so to me, those both turn. China's growth story totally changes. And also under Xi Jinping, people are going to stop investing in there. And the reason that the US is losing this type of jobs, incorporation of new people into the global economy, stops. And so it turns around. And so inequality globally has gone down. For instance, you know, China has a lot of poor people and they're no longer poor. Asia, etc. you know, Eastern Europe. But inequality in the US has gone up. So inequality globally has shrunk. So I believe that inequality in the US for structural reasons is no longer going to increase. It's going to decrease. And this is really, really interesting, no matter whether they change the policies or not. And this means that a lot of the unhappiness which has come from this will naturally sort itself, just don't have a war in the short term. All
1: right so I really appreciate... Uh, you walking through that entire <laughs> um, <laughs> passage. It was really no, it's really, really helpful. Mm. Um, not to say that I necessarily agree with all of that. but mm. I, I, I can I can detect points where you talk about, well, equality globally has risen, which is true. But if you look at the reason why that is, it's because if you look at um, the evolution of a country along a you know, the life cycle of a human being, you know, America was this 25-year-old who is going through a um, tough time, whereas China was still this five-year-old who is only just getting to the point where they grow up into an operating um, society kind of thing. And so anyone going from five to 15 is a lot easier than someone who's 25 and having a, a, a lull period in their life. Um, but the other point was that you kind of like just put in there as a footnote that like, yes, automation also plays into this um, by some, some by some factor. But um, at least what I've read is that they pointed to, well, the majority of job losses in these, um, you know, in the manufacturing uh, spaces it very closely aligned to not just exporting overseas to parts of Asia, but to automation as well. But um, I, I guess where we go, it's it probably, I don't know what do you think that's West exploring much further because it's really just going back to that original quote in terms of if, okay as long as you increase the opportunity for the boss or in general i think it was um and what did that really mean uh, it's, which is a really really interesting way to
0: try and like figure out what would be a, a good operating model for us to be able to run our society on yeah i've got to go in a few minutes but i'll of give you one example before the industrial revolution so i don't know late 1800s uh, in the u.s i believe that the u.s government's um you know percentage of the total GDP that they took as taxes was about 3%. Now it's like 25%. Now you can argue, are they spending it right? Is it in the right areas? But you can't argue that they're taking a wild amount more in percentage of the GDP. So massive amounts more redistribution is going on. I believe because technology is improving, that the amount of value one human can add, i.e. the leverage they can get, goes up. So, to me, structurally, the percentage of GDP that goes to the government, which therefore goes to redistribution, should go up systematically over time. It has been that. There's up, you know, troughs, there's Roosevelt's New Deal, et cetera. So, to me, I think that there has been structural reasons why there has been the deindustrialization of the US, you know, because it was the only person left standing. <laughs> um, and, you know, when the other countries stopped fighting with each other and started building stuff, they were going to take, you know, instead of having to buy all their stuff from the US, they could build some of it themselves. So to me, um, we do need to I hope you know increase opportunity for people at the bottom, but that does not mean that everyone should earn the same and that does not necessarily mean that everybody in an increasing you know for instance inequality is bad. It could be bad, it could be good. Um, we've gotten wildly off sort of you know, topic here um, but anyways, summary, um, I think we're talking about the value games, not the not the sort of power games um, and there hasn't been a massive you know, War since World War Two. Um, I certainly hope there isn't one, and this has meant that we've been able to invest in things. And so life, I think, for a lot of people is much better than what it was. So Buffett is fond of saying that he was born in 1930, and the richest person on earth at the time was John D. Rockefeller Sr. And now the average American lives better than he does. He, they have a, v- a fridge, they have air conditioning, they have a car. You know, they have the internet, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And so just in sort of three generations the average person has gone from, you know, wildly or, you know, from, you know, better to better than the richest person on earth. So this is an example of things improving massively. So I think, yeah, there's definitely things to improve about the world. You know, I think there hasn't been a fair enough splitting of the pie, but all else equal, I think it's very hard to say that things aren't better than they were 50 years ago.
1: Mm. Well, I agree with that um, point, Duncan. And I think, um, you know, the, the, the point that we're uh, trying to talk to at least myself not so well is this idea of equality of opportunity versus equality of outcome. And so when you talk about something well, when at least when I have uh, had mentioned something like the wealth gap, that would suggest equality of outcome, which is not something that you would get as a result of a well functioning capitalistic society. So your, your point on that. Um, I don't know about you, but I'm at a complete loss here for how an hour has already gone by. <laughs> but um, this, is the, this, the, this is where we start to turn the corner from an old functioning society where things were primarily governed in the power games model, where the strongest literally had all the power, to the value game, which was, um, at least in the story that Tim Urban says was founded by the founding fathers of the... Uh, and they wrote into it uh, rules that determined how we were going to function in this new world by way of providing a net positive impact rather than a zero-sum impact. And so this kind of took a little bit more of a, I don't know if it was more of a political term or at least philosophical one where we talk about, well, as part of this model, the idea of inequality not in terms of um, opportunity, but in in terms of how this further grows the pie for everyone. So I think what you said, Duncan was, or what Rawls said was inequality is only allowed in that it increases the opportunity. So we spent a long time trying to get me to wrap my head around that, <laughs> but I think I can understand the, the, the basic principles of what that is trying to extol. So. Yeah, a lot of stuff that we did cover here, but not necessarily what we might have set out to do. But there was definitely a very, uh, in um, a, a big learning curve for me anyway.
0: Cool. All right. Thanks, everyone. See you soon. Uh, Bye.